Hey, munchies. Yes, it's munchie. I- Oh my god, you said munchies? I have accepted my fate. I think it's corny, but I'm sticking with our brand. She said munchies! Oh! How's everyone doing today? The... This is a podcast. You know that people can't talk back to us, right? I'm sorry. I am out of it. Honestly, this story put me absolutely out of it. This really did do a number on you, huh? Not in a good way. Not in an artsy way. Just in an emotionally exhausting and not for good reasons way. Today, we're reading Fresh Complaint by Jeffrey Eugenides, the title story of Fresh Complaint, the short story collection. We're talking trigger warning for statutory sexual assault and kind of a lot of xenophobia and racism. Uh, Stop listening here if you don't want to hear about this. And here's your moment to leave. It's okay if you don't want to listen. Time for the lightning round review. Man, what is it with us in picking stories about physics professors preying on younger women? What is it with white men writing literary stories about physics professors preying on younger women? Ugh, damn, good point. Oh, to be a young, fresh person. Literally nobody says that. Too old to be part of the condom generation, though. Those are after my time. Literally nobody says that. Not a thing. Also, you're on your honeymoon right now. Please use condoms. Oh, don't worry. I, I'm I'm out. I'm not gonna talk about my birth control on this podcast. What the hell, V? You almost trapped me there. You almost got me to say personal things on this podcast. <laughs> You're Indian, V. What do you think the author would say if you talked to him about this story? Judging by what we just read, he'd ask me how my arranged marriage husband is and how often I wash the single sorry that I apparently own. Only one, no more. If you have two saris, you can't go back to India. You're not allowed. They check your luggage. I'm sorry, I let this get on. I let this get away from me. So, I have the fun task of giving you guys the entire synopsis of the story, because V's too upset to do it. Yeah, I'm pretty torn up about this one. Oh, it's not that bad. It's only an extremely personal betrayal from one of your favorite authors, which attacks everything you are and hold dear. Prakriti is a 16-year-old Indian-American girl. When her family goes back to India to celebrate Diwali, which the author describes like he's writing a Victorian-era travelogue, she learns that her marriage is being arranged with a 20-year-old loser. She spends a lot of time philosophizing about how horrible the very common custom of arranged marriages, sounding, by the way, like the worst kind of YA fantasy protagonist, and hatches a plan to get out of it. She seduces Matthew, a sad sack of a physics professor, but as it's apparently very important to know, there's no penetration. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Literally, just the tip. Oh, do you think that's what he calls his cock? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Six months later, since her parents won't back off, she files a police report against him using the ironclad logic that since it was statutory assault, her parents can't be mad at her. But of course, her one-dimensional mother is mad at her anyway. So in the end, she withdraws the charges and poor Matthew gets to come home. Yay. I have a lot to say. On to the discussion. I'm actually very upset about this because I love this author. Like, he is my literary hero. 
The Virgin Suicides is my favorite book of all time. I have never read a book that is more beautiful, more touching. And I would actually recommend that you guys go read that. But I don't know how to reconcile the fact that my literary hero wrote this story. This story had very literary writing at times and... It was. It had its beautiful moments in terms of the occasional sentence, I guess, that I liked. Yep, there were a couple of things where I, you know, quoted them at V, and I said, oh, this is really beautiful. And then she goes, oh, just you wait. And I go, oh, no. As an Indian woman, I listen extra carefully when a story talks about an Indian woman. Representation matters so much. Like, Mindy Kaling's TV show, Never Have I Ever, actually made me cry despite being like a teenage rom-com type of thing because I could relate to it and I could see a character that looked like me at the center of a soapy rom-com thing, which I really liked. This book technically came out before the Own Voices movement, but by like two years, you know? And it's not like people are all of a sudden going, hey... Maybe you shouldn't write a story where the whole conflict is being this particular minority group when you're not part of that minority group. You know, maybe that's a bad idea. Yeah. So Beth and I, in order to structure this conversation, have broken it down into several problem areas. Problem area number one, women people. So yes, this story came out around the time of the Me Too movement resurgence, was that 2017? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, But yeah, it's just so ridiculous that in the middle of the Me Too movement, this random author is going to be like, well, I'm going to write a story where a woman makes up a rape allegation to ruin a guy's life. It's just so ridiculous because, okay, picture a box. And in that box are all of the men who assault women. And um, a tiny corner of that box is men who are reported for assaulting women. And a tiny corner of that tiny corner is men who are actually jailed or face other consequences for assaulting women. And if you look up on top of the box, like just outside of it, if you really, really squint, you can see like a couple crumbs that represent the number of men who are falsely accused and have something bad happen to them because of it. It's like, it's a statistical anomaly. <laughs> I also hate the narrative about how reporting a rape is so central to ruining men's lives. But what about the woman, right? What about the psychological and emotional lasting damage that has been done to the victim of sexual assault? You know, male or female, like just the damage there. That is a lifelong baggage too. As a writer, Jeffrey Eugenides has power. He has a big platform and he has power to make complicated subjects confusing. You know, in terms of taking something black and white, you make it confusing, you give it meaning, and you make readers ask questions. But my question to you, Jeffrey Eugenides, is why use that power to write a story about a false statutorial rape accusation? Why make this a moral shade of gray? It's like you have this amazing gift of words and you can complicate subjects, but why try with this? 
why are we playing is he a bad man is she a bad person it's just in bad taste because rape victims have to feel the world of doubt when they try to go to the authorities for something that happened to them and most of them don't even do that do you ever just at the age of 16 orchestrate your own statutorial rape but it was just the tip what an exhausting read Honestly. And, you know, going back to the moral gray area thing, I thought it was, um, shall we say, interesting that arranged marriage, an institution which works for a lot of people around the world, has no moral gray area in this story. And uh, <laughs> rape does, you know. One is a cultural tradition that many people still consensually practice, and the other is a major violation of the human body. Now, point number two, treatment of race. The commentary of arranged marriage. Yeah! So the story has a very on-the-nose hatred of arranged marriage, but a very stereotyped brand of it. It doesn't do a nuanced exploration of the place that arranged marriage actually has in contemporary Indian culture. Yes, that's why I was saying it sounds like the viewpoint character is like a really lame, sassy, young adult fantasy protagonist because this isn't about like the modern institution of arranged marriage. It's about like some guy's conceptualization of how he thinks arranged marriage looks. And it feels so flat and so fake and so much like a fantasy story. My parents had an arranged marriage. And guess what? I know people who actually want one. It's just an approach to finding a life partner. Now, the West loves to sort of shit on arranged marriage, but in this day and age, under the umbrella of what we call arranged marriage, and I was talking to my dad about this, most of the time, the power is with the man and the woman who want to get married. They have the final say, and their parents merely facilitate a process of helping them look for certain priorities and criteria that they want in someone they're going to spend the rest of their life with, helping them look for references of people people they can talk to and consider starting a family with. And if you look under this umbrella, yes, on the very, very, very extreme end of it, I'm sure you're going to find some examples of people who somehow in this day and age don't have the power and are forced into arranged marriage. But that was mostly the case years and years and years and years and years ago, like a while ago, um, historically. It's not so much the case today at all. So it's a little frustrating to see this narrative of arranged marriage being this big shackle that the mom forces upon the daughter, to the extent that she would fake her own sexual assault, that the mom forces upon the daughter, um, which it's just not like that these days. It's really not. Yeah, it's rough. Uh, just so you guys have an idea of the way this man writes about arranged marriage, let me just uh, read some of this to you. Neither in the passing days did she tell her Indian friends about the arrangement. A lot of them had parents whose own marriages had been arranged, and so were used to hearing the practice defended at home. Some parents advanced the superiority of arranged marriages by citing the low divorce rate in India. Mr. Mehta, Devi Mehta's dad, liked to bring up a quote-unquote scientific study in psychology today, which concluded that people in love marriages were more in love during the first five years of marriage, whereas people in arranged marriages were more in love after 30 years of marriage. Love flowered from shared experiences was the message. It was a reward rather than a gift. Which, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, but he's saying it uh, pretty, pretty sarcastically. And then later on, she um, has a very uh, odd way of imagining her 
mother's arranged marriage with her father. Um, and she looks at uh, uh, their wedding picture and they're pretty young. And uh, <laughs> here's what she thinks about, again, her parents' wedding picture. But every now and then, compelled by outrage as much as curiosity, she forced herself to imagine the events immediately following the taking of that photo. A dark, provisionary hotel room somewhere. And, standing in the middle of it, her 17-year-old mother, a naive village girl who knew nothing about sex, or guys, or birth control, and yet who knew what was required of her in that particular moment, understood that it was her duty to take off her clothes in front of a man no less a stranger than someone she passed on the street, to remove her wedding sari, her satin slippers, her hand-sewn underclothes, her gold bangles and necklaces, and to lie on her back and let him do what he wanted to submit. This is just a gross misunderstanding of arranged marriage. And also, he literally says at one point, arranged marriage equals prostitution. And I just, I don't know how this story has not been criticized more before. Here are some choice quotes describing Indian people and culture, which Beth and I are going to take turns rattling off to you. So prepare for some racist, or not even if it's not racist, some xenophobic, mild, some xenophobic sparkle. Oh boy, yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's not just the arranged marriage that's ridiculous about Indian culture, apparently. Get into quote voice, girl. Let's do this. The glittery nonsense surrounding the holiday, Lakshmi, goddess of prosperity, because we all know, you know, Hinduism, that's just ridiculous. Your soul went into another body. That's what her mother believed. Her father doubted it, and Prakriti knew it wasn't true. She describes her betrothed as skinny in a developing world way, which I think we can all agree, yikes. And then one phrase says, Where a white-haired man in a narrow jacket sat cross-legged on a mat, the kind of man you expected to encounter in India. A guru. Or a politician. Yes, those things are exactly the same. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The two types of men in India. A spiritual leader and a politician. The two types of men anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and then of course, um, for some reason, she describes her older aunties as um, clustering around her with their sagging breasts and bellies. Okay, Judging much, Miss 16-year-old, taught and perfect? Okay. And when the professor is looking at her... Oh, God. It says that her American clothes didn't keep the extravagance of her face from making Matthew think of her genetic origins far away. No, she's just so exotic. Oh. Wait, wait. Exotic? What were you saying? Do you want to read this one? Oh, yeah. Her dark lips... Her arching nose with its flared nostrils, and most of all, her startling eyes, which were a color that might only exist in a painting where the artist could mix green and blue and yellow indiscriminately, made the girl look less like a college student from Delaware than a dancing guppy or a child saint venerated by the masses. I don't know what to say to that. And the worst part is yet to come. So I I almost forgot this was a thing. Oh, God. I know, it's so bad. So there's some traditional Indian women in the story. um, In her school, specifically. That she sees in passing. And the way that the author chooses to describe this group of women is very derogatory because they have a different relationship with their religion than 
the protagonist does. They have a different relationship with their culture. They have a certain relationship with their parents. And those differ from the typical Americanized values, which is not to say either is wrong or right, but... Yeah, what do you mean they haven't fully culturally assimilated? That's horrible. The author clearly thinks this is wrong. Okay, I will I will take this burden for you, V. <clears throat> but it was all an act. They knew things were different in America. Oh, say can you see? Sorry. <clears throat> Except that sometimes they weren't. There was a group of girls at Prakati's school who came from super conservative families. Girls who'd been born in India themselves and partly raised there and who, as a consequence, were totally submissive. Though these girls spoke perfect English in class and wrote essays in strange, beautiful, almost Victorian style, among themselves they preferred to speak Hindi or Gujarati or whatever. They never ate cafeteria food like or used the vending machines, but brought their own vegetarian lunches packed in tiffins. These girls weren't allowed to attend school dances or to join after-school clubs that had boys as members. They came to school every day and quietly, dutifully did their work. And after the last bell sounded, they trooped out to Kia sedans and Honda minivans to be returned to their quarantined existence. There was a rumor that these girls, protective of their hymens, wouldn't use tampons. That inspired the nickname Prakriti and her friends had for them. The hymens, they called them. Here come the hymens. You ever just... Uh, I don't know what to say. But me, you don't understand. They speak Hindi in school. Hindi! Oh my god. It, the hymens? Like, that's so bad. They eat vegetarian lunches! They eat vegetarian lunches! I mean, how do you not understand how horrible this is? Vegetarian lunches instead of vending machine food that's full of sugar and salt? Not in my good American school. Oh, man. Um, why the fuck does her mother react about her marriage ability rather than, I don't know, the fact that her daughter got sexually assaulted? Well, you know, her mother is a one-dimensional Disney villain, actually with less well-rounded motivations than a Disney villain, and so she sees her daughter only as an object. Oh yeah, like in this quote, her mother turned to look at her, not with her newly softened or evasive expression, but the hard, disapproving face that had always been hers. Her hands were gripping the steering wheel so tightly, her knuckles went white. You got yourself into this predicament, you could get yourself out. You want to be in charge of your life? Go on then, I'm finished, it's hopeless. How can we find another husband for you now? You know how your mother talks to you after you've been sexually assaulted? And then of course, we have... It was, of course. But the emotion that surged through Prakriti was nothing as simple as happiness or relief. It felt more like remorse. For what she'd done to her parents and to herself, she began to sob, turning her face to the car door. Her mother made no move to comfort her. When she spoke again, her voice was full of bitter amusement. So you love the boy after all. Is that it? You were just fooling your parents all this time? It's horrible. And it's just like what she did, apparently. Like, at the end, she sends this text to the professor saying, I'm going to try to be a better person, as if he wasn't complicit. And then, okay, so I was on Goodreads. Join my Goodreads group, by the way, guys. Um, oh, yeah, only go on Goodreads for that. Never read the reviews of shit like this. I'm, I'm sorry, go on, V. Um, so I was on Goodreads which you should go on to join my group. And I saw this review that... I saw a couple of reviews 
that took a lot of pride in not being offended by this story and not being a stickler for political correctness and saying, you know, the writer is not an activist or a politician. He doesn't need to be politically correct, which kind of shocks me. Like a story can examine a creepy topic. That's literally Lolita. But the story has to write it in a certain way that makes you understand, that makes you take a certain something out of it. This was just ignorant and extremely harmful. And I don't see how taking pride in not being a little upset that this was written the way it was is such a thing to be- Well, if it didn't offend me, a middle-aged white man from America, from the Midwest, then it shouldn't offend you. Also, the writer is one of the most powerful people out there. Like, yes, the writer is not necessarily a politician, but writers create culture. Writers voice culture. Writers inspire people. Writers change lives. The Virgin Suicides changed my life in many ways. And I know Middlesex did the same thing for a lot of other people, like all by this author. And it just shocks me that a man who could write such powerful words chooses to use his power to write these words. Yes, exactly. So what are we rating this? Negative 1,000 sandwiches out of five. If you shit on a piece of bread and give it to me to eat, it's not a sandwich. It's a salt. That's it for today. Follow us on Twitter at LitLunchCast. Email us at LitLunchPodcast at gmail.com. Or find us on our website, LiteraryLunchPodcast.wordpress.com. Or join my Goodreads group. Please join my Goodreads group. We want to hear your thoughts, feelings, and reaction to the story in the next one. You may even get a shout out. You should message me. Maybe on the Goodreads group. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. Bye. Bye, munchies.